Tyson has been knocked out. Unbelievable. This makes Cinderella look like a sad story. What Buster Douglas has done here tonight. I've always felt like an underdog. It started with my height. In grade nine, I was five foot one, the only boy in gym class under 100 pounds, and I was late to puberty. Thankfully, I had a final growth spurt that took me to five foot 10 if I stretched it out on the doctor's scales. Maybe his reading glass prescription hadn't been renewed. For most of my career, it was my boutique agency against the multinationals. I never felt like it was in the pole position, but it certainly motivated me to go after it. And that's just the way underdogs roll. We work hard, we work tirelessly, and we work to win regardless of the odds. And for that reason, until later in my career, I never stopped to smell the roses or to reflect on where I was or where I traveled. But I've always loved that underdog story. The Narnia Chronicles. Frodo and Bilbo Baggins leaving the Shire to battle of good over evil. Cinderella moving from sweeping ashes to sweeping a prince off her feet. Lowly Peter Parker spinning a web and saving New York City. And the true stories? The against-all-odds achievements of individuals or teams who find a way to achieve it their way, they make me want to cry or pound my fists together or just give them a standing ovation. I know I'm not alone. Straight out of Compton, the pursuit of happiness based on Chris Gardner's uh, memoir about his nearly one-year struggle with homelessness while raising his young son, or even the fictional stories you just want to believe that Rocky Balboa existed, or Shawshank Redemption, a league of their own Rudy. You get the picture. We've all been an underdog before. Nobody wakes up one day with the confidence and temperament of a master. The dreaded imposter syndrome can creep in even after we find success. What am I doing here? Everybody around me knows I'm a fraud. Do I really deserve this promotion? In fact, a study published in the International Journal of Behavioral Science estimates that around 70% of us have experienced imposter syndrome one time or another. And that's why we root for David over Goliath, because a character with flaws and warts and self-doubt and physical or mental limitations and other obstacles to succeed or overcome what seems like insurmountable competition is the character that drives much of our lives. Well, my guest today is an underdog whisperer. He's built his career and international reputation by conquering his self-doubt and instilling confidence in himself and actually people around the world. He went from where he felt he was a nobody to somebody, a seven-time world champion musician, a captain who led a few underdog teams to victory, and today a coach and mentor empowering others. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. What he'll offer you today are ideas on how you can take charge of your destiny and take down your Goliaths, even the ones buried between your ears. James Lachlan, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, it's an absolute pleasure, and you are a wordsmith. I love listening to you. So I need your help. Speaking of a bad wordsmith, I have no idea how to introduce you because it would take an hour to talk about all your many accomplishments. So give me the elevator pitch on who you are. <laughs> I love it. Well, hello to the listener that's listening right now. I'm James Lachlan. I'm an Irishman who lives down here in the Antipodes, down in New Zealand, and uh, I help CEOs, I help professional athletes, and what I help them with is a high-performance mindset, helping them achieve what others think is unachievable. And I do that from a place of experience, a place of passion, and a place of service. That's fantastic. You sound like you just have skipped through your life, but when I did research on you, 
things weren't always so good. I mean, you struggled in school. So take me back to your background because you really have, in many ways, done this underdog journey, haven't you? A hundred percent. You know, so I grew up in Northern Ireland. So for the listener that doesn't know much about Northern Ireland, well, it's a place of division. It's also a beautiful place. It's geographically stunning, but there's a deep rooted history there uh, and a division between Catholics and Protestants. And from a young age, I became very aware of that. My um, mom and dad are opposing religions. And um, so we were brought up to respect people for being people and remove religion and race and color. What happened when you took that attitude into schools where people fed off of being one or another. Like, you know, you had to hate the Catholics or hate the Protestants because in our world today, it seems that you have to be in a camp and, and standing, you know, strong with your group and absolutely opposing others. So how did you come to terms with the fact that you were standing on the middle ground? That was tricky. And honestly, yeah, we grew up in a Protestant town, a very small working class town. And um, it was, a, I wouldn't say anti-Catholic, but certainly the, the rhetoric around the, the playground, um, there was some awful things said and awful slurs made about Catholics. And uh, as a young man who knew that his mum uh, was Catholic, that was a, it was a pretty, uh, pretty tricky thing uh, to navigate. I felt actually, Tony, I didn't belong in Northern Ireland. I felt like uh, disconnected. I didn't feel like I wanted to live there. And so I used to sit on the front doorstep and look at the planes in the distance taken off from Belfast. And I imagine they all went to New York. I don't know why, but I imagine they did. And I'd be on one of those planes one day. And I didn't care what I had to do to get there, but I'd be on that plane. There was a lot of ups and downs. And I spent a lot of time in the headmaster's office. I was very, I'm going to use the word effervescent. Let's use a, let's use a positive psychology world word. Um, I was very effervescent. So I ended up in his office quite a bit. He just said, look, there's two options today. You've got detention for a week or you've got a set of drumsticks. And I said, are you punking me? Is it, is this a prank? Like, what's going on? He went, no, you take the drumsticks for the next term. You're going to get a drum lesson after school. And Tony, I was thinking, the girls are going to love me. I'm going to be the next Ringo star. And so I was like, yep, count me in, no detention. But I didn't realize that my headmaster was the pipe major of a bagpipe band. What do they wear? They wear kilts. So at nine years old, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> what have I got myself into? This is not so cool. This is not very Ringo. But I, I started to love it. I got some high praise from the people around me and my teachers and my headmaster. So I had a sense of purpose and a sense of significance. Within a short time, I became very fanatical about it. I'm quite a competitive, driven individual. And I started attending championships. And by the time I was 13, I was fortunate enough to win the World Solo Drumming Championship. And then again, the following year. But right after that, I got a call from Canada. And I was about 14 and the call came in from Vancouver, Canada. And essentially, that was my ticket out of Northern Ireland. It was Simon Fraser University, and they had a, a pipe band program, and they wanted me to come join and help support them in winning their world championship uh, title. And so that was the start of a uh, new life. So just take me back, because I love this, you know, how it happened. But, you know, the headmaster must have seen something in you. I, I remember my high school teacher, Mr. McPherson, taking me aside one day and said, you know, your, your name comes off often in the cafeteria when we're when the teachers are talking i said well really he goes yeah half of the teachers want you thrown out of the school because you're a pain in the ass and the other half think there might be something very special about you what is it and i looked at that and that was my turning point he got me involved in the debating in high school and i suddenly went from sort of that big loud disruptive voice in the classroom to somebody that had to put a little more thought into their thinking it's amazing that sometimes it's just that one individual 
changes the course of your life. And I would say I was absolutely the same person. Half the teaching staff thought I was a punk. And the other half were like, you've got some secret sauce. Like, how are we going to channel this? And certainly Mr. Pollock, I remember writing him a letter. I was about 25, 26 here in New Zealand. And I wrote him a letter and he obviously long retired just to thank him. You talk about your competitive nature. And I'd love your thought on this because in our school system in Canada, we seem to be shying away from competition and instead rewarding participation. You know, even in track meets now, they don't want to keep track of the how far you've jumped or how fast you've run. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Encouraging participation is a wonderful thing. Rewarding it is not. At the end of the day, standards are standards. We've got to measure what matters. And when we stop measuring what matters, we've lost all sense of value and significance. And, you know, when I look at excellence and you see Serena Williams... Could you imagine back when she was a kid if they didn't have first and second and, you know, winners and losers? We might not have seen a Serena. We need to make sure that we continue to say first place is first place, second place is second place or first loser, some might call it. And at the end of the day, we need that to separate standards. If you had a house and someone said, hey, we've got a builder who, um, you know, he's been really rewarded for just participating in the building trades and participating in building his skill. He's not a master builder. We're going to get him to build your house. You'd be like, I don't think so. I want the master builder who's got the certifications, who came first. And why should we make that any different for our kids? Our kids have got to realize that to, to succeed, you've got to be excellent at what you do. Hi, I'm James Lachlan, a former seven-time world champion pipe band drummer. I want to share with you a little bit of a lesson inside my pipe band drumming inner circle. So every week I have a live practical lesson delivered either by myself or one of my amazing lineup of tutors. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is James Lachlan. Incredible story from wayward youth to a world champion drummer and every beat in between. James, in one of the interviews, you said you didn't take long to realize you weren't keen to follow the herd. You mentioned earlier about being the, uh, for half the teachers, seeing you as a punk. But what made you such a contrarian at such a young age? You know what? I've always had a deep curiosity. My son, I've got a six-year-old boy. He's, I can see it in him already. And I've seen it for the last few years with him. The, some people would call me a pain in the ass because I ask questions. I'm always asking why. Like, why this? Why that? Tell me more. You know, with my teachers, that became frustrating. I think potentially they found this, you know, 9, 10, 11-year-old person challenging and, you know, questioning their intelligence. But actually, I was just curious. That definitely led me into some some conflict with with people. But other teachers seen it as a, as a, as a great skill and a great trait. So I've just always maintained that the greatest question is why. And I continue to ask it. And that's why, you know, I interview prime ministers and presidents and great leaders of all sorts, because I want to know what makes people tick. And I continue. You're an extraordinary interviewer, by the way. And uh, I love the fact that it really does just seem like a conversation, even though sometimes uh, you're sitting in a chair and the other person could be sitting in a throne. So it's really interesting to see how you equalize it. I'm, I'm curious about, you also talked about early on in your life, you had a lot of self-doubt. You weren't sure, you know, maybe it's just a kid sitting on the steps, looking at the plane, hoping you'll be on it one day, but you would probably not have betted on yourself early on. Was it the drumming that made you realize you could do anything? Yeah, 100%. I had a ton of self-doubt. And, you know, at school, I never seen myself as the best. Like football was a big thing. I was never the best footballer. In fact, I was far from it. I was never a good rugby player. I didn't see myself as handsome and some somebody that the girls would be attracted to. I never seen myself as being the smartest kid in the class 
I didn't also, I didn't see myself being the unsmartest kid in the class, but I never had this like, wow, I'm special. You know, and I was told my, my mom was great. My dad was great. They, they brought, brought me up with a lot of love. But I think when you grow up in a working class town, building that self-belief can sometimes be perceived as tooting your own horn. And uh, here in New Zealand, it's the same, this tall poppy syndrome. When people start to grow and succeed, often people will try to bring them back down to earth. Uh, so I don't think uh, I had a muscle that I was building of self-belief. And it was the drumming. Like I remember that at 13, hearing my name announced as world solo drumming champion, that was a pivotal moment. And uh, my dad was there and I just, I'd never seen him erupt instantaneously, like scream from his lungs when I won the world championships. And I was like, wow, this is a special moment. Like I want to do this again. This is cool. So I think that was a definite turning point. And the, Tall poppy syndrome you just talked about. What's your advice when you're in a country like that? And I would consider Canada to be that way, that we don't celebrate our heroes and people that succeed. I mean, we're, we, we champion, but we're very happy to relish the fact when they stumble. What's your advice for people that are succeeding in that environment? Not to really worry about people that are trying to take you down, but maybe the advice to make them grow even taller. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, a couple things on that front. So the people that are pulling you down, are not people who are in the arena. They are sideline, you know, keyboard warriors. They are people who have never walked the walk. So when you do hear that criticism, just appreciate that it's not coming from someone in the arena. Your competitors, your peers, they won't do that. Constructive criticism is an interesting thing. You can be criticized, but constructive criticism, I always believe never listen to someone who has not constructed successfully what they're criticizing. I was chatting with Richie McCaw about three years ago. So he's the former All Blacks rugby captain. So he's a world champion rugby player, arguably one of the history's greatest players. And I chatted to him about tall poppy syndrome. He's a New Zealander and he said he definitely felt it. And what he did was he took that and he used that as fuel to be even better, to train even harder and to win another world championship title. So I think that true high performers are able to harness and embrace that, you know, people cutting them down, people wanting them to fail, people slandering them. They take that and they use that as fuel to succeed. I don't know if this is possible. But I don't even know if you were involved with the writing of your website. But when I went through your content and I saw how you compressed your life journey by decades, I thought it was magical. I thought this was somebody that really understands that uh, every step you take is a step that you have an ability to go forward with. So can you share with us your highlight reel, James Lachlan, through the decades? Yeah, well, thank you. You know, I took a bit of time um, uh, with a guy called Donald Miller, who's a, he wrote a book called Story Brand. And for anybody that wants to tell their own story, it's just an incredible book, Story Brand. And um, that helped me to kind of look at my life in a bit of a different way. So, you know, when I look at my teens, my teens were dynamic. You know, there was a, I was drinking alcohol quite heavily from a very young age, you know, 13, 12 or 13. You know, there was a lot of rocky roads there. Drumming saved me. Uh, the call from Vancouver, Canada was uh, saving grace. Um, headed across there, seen life from a very different point of view. Won another few world championships whilst I was there, which uh, again, uh, was really reinforcing that self-belief that, hey, when you work hard, results uh, come from that. So my teens... Uh, yeah, there was an opportunity to go back to Ireland, but another call came in from New Zealand, private school in New Zealand, asking me if I'd help them become the first world champions from New Zealand. 
And uh, there had never been a world champion drumline uh, or pipe band from this part of the world. They were certainly underdogs by a long stretch. In my early 20s, I, I moved down here, started a retail business uh, selling percussion instruments all over Australasia, started working with the school. Uh, they kept up their end of the bargain, which I had negotiated permanent residence because that was my ticket to uh, get out of Northern Ireland. And I kept up my end of the bargain. It took eight years, but in the end, they rewrote the history books and they went on and they they performed at a world-class level in, in the UK and ended up becoming the first world champions. And to me, that was more important to me than any victories I'd won. I mean, this, the, the feeling I experienced to see this young group rewrite history for themselves and for their country, it was, it was very special. And the, the 20s, yeah, they, they were difficult. I, I guess we had earthquakes here in Christchurch, which destroyed our city uh, for a number of years. Personally, I, went, I got married pretty young to Lisa, Canadian uh, from the West Coast. That's Finn's mum. We got married in Australia. We were on a business here. We were busy being busy. Uh, we had a few life ambushes, uh, you know, in the form of we had a miscarriage, which I thought would be, will be fine. This is, this is part and parcel, but actually I didn't cope with it very well. Uh, that led me to realize that with earthquakes and challenges like miscarriage, I developed PTSD. I just thought, how could I? I could have PTSD, like I'm so positive and it's like life, like I, I just look at all the opportunities ahead of me. And, but actually I wasn't coping very well, Tony. I was drinking heavily again and uh, letting myself go physically and it wasn't good. And so during the 20s there, I went and got therapy, started to explore where's my career headed? You know, I'm this drummer, like my identity was James the drummer, like everyone knew me as that, the world, the digital world, everyone, my family. But I'm starting to become a little uncomfortable and a little bit like itchy, like something's, there's something else here. And interestingly enough, it was a Tony Robbins event in uh, Australia. So I'd, I'd heard lots about Tony. I'd read lots about him when I was a kid around performance psychology. Went to his event, mind blown, pretty full on, pretty intense. Lots of great takeaways. But biggest moment there was, wow, I'm headed in the wrong direction. I've, I've gained all these incredible skills and challenges and obstacles that I've overcame. But actually, I'm headed in the wrong direction. So I took stock and started to realize that the skills that I had, I wanted to, to work with leaders because I feel like everything rises and falls with leadership, good or bad. And so I wanted to be a part of that and then try to influence that in any way I could. So started to go and learn how to become a coach and started to work with teams and apply the, the concepts I'd, I'd used to win world championships and help others win to sports and to business and started to look where the gaps were. And, you know, through the late 20s and early 30s, massive change. Um, so Lisa and I consciously uncoupled, and uh, we're still great friends. We've got a little boy together, little Finn, uh, who's six. And uh, we traversed that, which wasn't easy. Consciously uncoupling sounds like this wonderful experience. Uh, but actually, it was just, um, it was challenging, and it was difficult, Tony. And we're at the other end of that, better people, and uh, we're way better connected. And uh, I started, uh, yeah, really developed the business po or pre-COVID. I got a little bit uh, worried during COVID. Obviously, the world did in terms of where, th where things headed. But I managed to traverse that and come out the other side and continuing to help high performers and, and CEOs and love what I do. You're, you know, you've spoken to the grandson of Nelson Mandela, John Key, the former president of New Zealand. You're writing books. You're on the stage. How do you feel now about yourself in terms of from the point where you went to Robin's seminar, realizing your knapsack was full of skills, but your compass was pointed the wrong way to where you are today? 
I'll be honest, and I wouldn't have said this five or six years ago. I'm really proud of where I am right now, and it's it's a quiet pride, and uh, something I wake up and I feel joy. I, I feel totally privileged to wake up and do what I do with the people I do it with. And if I can continue to do this for the foreseeable future and to add value to people in whatever way I can do that, then you know it's it's a deep sense of gratitude and appreciation. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, I talk to James Lachlan about finding purpose. People everywhere are encouraged to see it, but what does it exactly mean? Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. Achieving balance to me means eight hours sleeping, eight hours performing, eight hours eating. Like We just can't do this equally. So balance for all of us is very subjective. We need to decide what balance looks like. So I'm going to challenge you to do something. Stop trying to achieve perfect balance. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is James Lachlan, a wayward youth, picks up some drumsticks and finds his way to becoming world champion. Jace, many of your teachings involve finding a sense of purpose. That you really, I, maybe they were all manifested from the time you were sitting on the steps dreaming of the airplane taking to New York or winning the world championship in drumming. But it seems that word is radiates for me. So talk to me a little bit about what does that actually mean? Because I think everybody's being told nowadays to find it, but I'm not sure they know what they're looking for. I do feel that in this day and age, like the whole idea of purpose in the corporate world, certainly, it's being overused, misused, misinterpreted, burned out. It's, it's, it's a word I feel that we definitely try to attach to our businesses and our lives. Here's, here's my take. You've got passion and you've got purpose. Your passions are for you and your purpose is for others. And what I mean by that is your passions could be a sport, a hobby, something you really love doing, you know, books that you love reading. It could be art that you create. It could be traveling to Europe. That's your passions. Your purpose is something that you can do to add value to others, to impact others, to make a difference in your small community, your family, your, it could be the world. But to me, when you can just keep your passions for you and appreciate that your purpose is for service and for others, to me, that, that really keeps them separate and keeps it clear. And I don't believe in this one purpose for life. Very few people can do that. You know, Nelson Mandela is probably a great example of someone who had one overarching purpose throughout his most of his life. But most people, we have different purposes at different seasons in our life. Like my purpose now as a dad will probably be a little bit different as a granddad if I'm fortunate enough to become one. My, my purpose as a teenager to the people around me and the people that I could support and add value to is very different now. So as an adult, the people that I can add value to and, and impact. So yeah, passion and purpose. I always think of those two alongside each other, but one's for self, one's for other. You know, one of the things I've always talked to people about when they've come into my office and, you know, say, can you give me some advice is I always say there's three kinds of wealth. There's intellectual wealth, emotional wealth, and financial. 
If you spend your life chasing financial wealth, you'll never be wealthy because there'll always be somebody with more money, a bigger boat, uh, a fancier car. If you focus on intellectual wealth, you could be in a lifetime of learning and just an insatiable appetite, the curiosity you talk about. And it's a life well served and emotional as you found your place. You found the reason why. I think you'd call it purpose. And it's interesting that we're very similar in our thinking. I think when you combine those two, what matters to you? I think it's such an incredible life well served. But it's sad that so often parents, educational systems, societal norms push you down a path that offer little of any other than maybe this is a job where you'll make a good living. I hated high school the last couple of years. I hated it. Checked out, done. It's as all they're, they're telling us what to do, how to do it, how to think. That didn't work for me. I was like, I want to be creative. So I left high school, ended up going and teaching drums at a private high school in New Zealand. Who would have thought? Loved what I did there. But everyone was saying, James, what happens if you lose your hand and you can't drum? That's all you've got. That's all you know. And that started to sow a seed. I was like, wow, maybe they're right. So from my early 20s, people were saying, go to university. You need a degree. And so I used that as fuel to go, screw you. I'm going to grow a business. I don't need a degree. And I'm going to teach and I'm going to go, go around the world adding value as a drummer. But I got to late 20s and, you know, parenthood was, you know, on the cards. And I started to think, wow, what if I do lose that hand or that finger? What can I do? And so I actually went back and uh, to university at 30 years old. What was interesting about that was here in New Zealand, they have a, what they call fees free. So the government pays the first year of everyone's degree to get them started and encourage them to go to university. And it was a three-year degree and it was all around applied management, project management and leadership. And it was all around what you'd done in your life already and unpacking the lessons from building your business and building the teams. And it was the most enjoyable process. It was going back and going, oh, wow. That's cool. I didn't realize that about how I did that and how I thought about that. That's the theory behind that. And what was really cool is they, they grade skipped me two years. They're like, look, you don't need to do the first two years because you've done all that in your life. That's all good. So it's just a one year degree. And in fact, it ended up, but took me about eight months. And um, so it was a free degree essentially for getting it. And for me, I learned more about myself, my weaknesses, my strengths, what I brought to the table. And Tony, I did it on my time. I did it when I was ready. I'd had a bit of world experience. If I hadn't done it when I was 18 or 19, I would have been skipping class. I would have been drinking at lunch. I would have changed degrees three times and I would have came out very much in debt. So I was glad that I didn't end up following the path and it ended up working out for me anyway, worked out better. So Jay's, we were talking before we got on air about high-performance leadership. I could see your eyes shine. I could just see your body language change because it's almost like I would imagine a musician that, that stops playing someone else's song and writes their own song. You have this sort of pride in this intellectual content. So share with us what you're doing with high-performance leadership and why you feel it can really matter for so many people. Look, I'm so passionate about it. And to me, you know, high-performance leadership, when I think of high-performance Here's what I think. Rewind 20 years. Where health ends, high performance begins, right? So we were sacrificing our health, sacrificing what mattered most to get the big results. My firm belief is this. To be a high performer, it's performing above the standard norms over the long term whilst maintaining positive relationships and well-being. That last bit, the positive relationships and well-being, that was something I struggled with, I suffered with, I didn't do well, and there was collateral. 
And to me, that's not high performance. So high performance, you have to be making sure that you're balancing the key things in your life, not balancing everything, but measure what matters. And so the high performance leadership framework, it's something I've worked over the last 10 years to put together based on my own experiences, my own failures, lessons, successes, but also the hundreds and hundreds of interviews and coaching sessions I've done with world leaders, business leaders, professional athletes. And I realized that there's, there's a rhythm and there's a pattern that comes up with high performers. The very first pillar I'll share with you is vision. Every successful high performer in any field has a vision. Vision precedes victory. You're in a boat and you're in the stormy Southern Ocean, early 1900s. You're heading south. You're on a mission to achieve the unachievable. However, there's another boat heading down there to try and beat you to it. On the first boat was Roald Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer, on his boat, the Fram, along with his team. On the other boat was Captain Scott, both trying to get to the South Pole before each other, to be the first humans to succeed. Now, both were leaders. Both had a mission, but they led in very different ways. Captain Scott was very much, don't worry about it. I've got this. I'll look after you. I'm the leader. Just just follow me. He didn't want people to carry the burden. He wanted to be that lead from the front guy. Roald Amundsen, on the other hand, he had actually spent 10 years in the Arctic Circle crafting his knowledge of, of Arctic exploration. He hired specialists, someone who was a, a metal worker who could really hone the sleds. He hired a dog trainer who had spent his life training dogs in the Arctic. He was not afraid to hire people better than him and allow them independence in their role to contribute to the team effort. Roald Amundsen also, in the canteen on the ship, had a map with X marks the spot. There's where we're going. Every single day, we're going to do a 15-mile march. Good weather, bad weather, indifferent, we're going to do it. Captain Scott, on the other hand, said, if it's crap weather, we hunker down. And when it's good weather, we go five, six times further than we, we normally would. In the end, two very different outcomes. Captain Scott and his very depleted team, as they get to the South Pole, what do they see? The Norwegian flag flying. They'd been defeated. Within four days, his entire team, including himself, perished on the ice. They lost all sense, sense of hope. They lost all sense of purpose. They didn't want to go home and, uh, and shame. It was too much. And two of them took their own lives. What's the difference? Well, one had something that's intangible. You can't see it, but he was able to share that with his team. And that is vision. He was able to share his vision and make it compelling and get everybody on the boat. And so they, they got there and they became the, the, the first people to reach the South Pole. And for me, that's where high performance begins. It's getting damn clear on where are you headed? Where is your North Star or where is your South Pole? Get clear on that because all the other things that follow after are really meaningless unless we know where we're headed. So the HPL framework starts with vision and then we back it up with belief. We, you and I have talked about this already around how to develop that belief in yourself and belief in your team and belief to follow through. The BS, I call it the belief system, how we impact that and influence that. We look at desire and motivation. I mean, how often do we hear of people losing interest, leaving jobs, lacking motivation? Well, there's human needs psychology that we can use as leaders that really helps us support their needs. Then we look at self-discipline. No high performer lacks discipline. Look at how the top performers actually embrace discipline. Evaluation. You know, I really believe self-evaluation is the seed of self-mastery. So learning how to do that in a really powerful way, doing it consistently, 
Habits, of course, a high performer, high performer has high performing habits. And last but not least, the last pillar is all around growth. I mean, we can't continue to perform at a high level without being fully committed to growth. And I always think about Nelson Mandela as being the godfather of growth, continually reading, continually asking questions, continually challenging himself and others. And so we go deep in each of those pillars. And at the end of, of that program, the individual or the team walk away with a very clear idea of who they are, where they're headed, how they're going to get there, and what they're going to need to be successful. And is there one area of those pillars that tends to crumble most or is everybody different when it comes to trying to become a high performer? Look, I think the one that most people struggle with is the first one, is vision. People lack clarity. And I was one of those for a long time. And still, Tony, there's times when I lack clarity on where to next. And that's when I feel it in my solar plexus. It's like frustration. It's feeling stuck. I think vision is the most important one. Where are you headed? What does it look like? What does it sound like, feel like? Who's there with you? The vision's the number one. Most people go to the habits and they're like, oh, my habits aren't good. I'm not going to the gym or I'm not waking up early enough. You know what? That stuff there, that's easy when you get clear on your vision. Do you think Nelson Mandela would struggle to get up from his bed when he had a mission so huge to really reach that equality and that justice? He's, he's popping out of his bed. Do you think he would struggle to do his morning walk and his push-ups each day? No, he was so committed to his physical health because he knew he needed to survive a long period of time to make the impact that he did. So I think, honestly, it starts with vision. Get that right, and everything flows. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is James Lockleb. He traded a detention to take up the drums, became a world champion, and now applies what he learned in music into the field of coaching. Do you have any advice? Because some people have a very clear vision, and I've met them, the leaders that you, you, we both know that are just, uh, they can animate their stories. I always tell the story about walking through a rock quarry and the first person says, you know, I'm cutting rock. You ask the second person, what are you doing? They're going, I'm cutting rock. And the third person doing the same job, but she's got shining eyes and singing. She goes, I'm part of a team building a great cathedral. You know, somebody, somebody has shared with her a much higher purpose than cutting rock and Love it. animated the story. But for those that don't necessarily have the ability to animate, to take something that might seem very obvious to them on paper, to bring it to life so that that ship full of uh, metal workers and, and dog trainers are willing to go 15 miles a day. Is there any advice on how they can overcome maybe their lack of confidence or their, just their ability to create magic in a way that people want to follow? Your perception really shapes your reality. And when you can shift your perception, your reality how it just it transforms. Now, some of us do struggle to do that. And I've done that for a lot. I've really struggled to shift my perception. What has helped me has been an external source in the form of mentors, coaches, trainers, different people with different skill sets that allow me to see things from a different point of view. I've actually, I've got a great mentor. He's in his late seventies and he wrote the, the performance psychology framework for the All Blacks that has helped them and still continues to help them be world-class. And it's a framework called Dapper. His name's Renzi Hannum. He's an amazing human and it's called Dapper. And this is what I use when I get stuck or I'm trying to get a bit more clear. D stands for detach. You've got to remove yourself from the noise. So detach from the craziness. How do we do that? We do that through nature bathing or meditating. 
uh, breath work, exercise, but something to break the pattern. A stands for assess. Only assess once you've detached. You're going to see it differently when you've detached. How do we assess? Get out of your head and onto the page. What's going on? What are the challenges? What do I think I need to do? Where am I being held back? What would the dream outcome look like? P, we're getting into the P, the plan. Okay, so what's that plan look like? The other P is priorities. Okay, with that plan, what are the priorities? E, execute, actually take action today, right now at the site of writing what your, your plan and your priorities are. Take small action, but take it frequently. And the R, the most important part, is to review. Now, I've went through that three or four times and still felt stuck. But then I get to the fifth iteration. I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Yes, now I know what I need to do and how it looks. So it's a great, simple framework. James, you've got an incredible podcast. What's the best way for people to find it, and more importantly, when they get there, what are you hoping they're going to take away from it? So best place to listen is either on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It's called the Lead on Purpose podcast with James Lachlan. And you know what? When people come there, I want them to, to feel inspired when they when they listen to an episode. I, I interview all different types of people, uh, neuroscientists, doctors, uh, Team Mercedes Formula One coaches, uh prime ministers, presidents, all different types of people. But the one thing uh, that I try to elicit from each of the listeners is what were your struggles? How did you overcome self-doubt? What advice do you have for someone who's trying to lead their life on purpose? So if anyone was to listen to that, I would love them to walk away with that with a little nugget of how they can lead their lives with a little bit more purpose. So James, I always end the show with my three takeaways. Measure what matters. With Serena Williams had ever given us the tennis that she gave us if they didn't let her know when she was number one or what it would take to get there. It's not about participation, which is important. It's also about being the best you can be. Second one is your tall poppy syndrome. I love the fact that, listen, the people that want to tear you down, they're not in the arena with you. They're not your peers. They're probably not your competitors. They're people on the sidelines, their fingers dancing across keyboards. They're sniping with their social media slingshots. So if they're not in your arena, just tune them out. I guess the final one is just this sense of, which I think is so profound, is passion is who you are and what makes your heart beat and your eyes shine. And purpose is what you give to the world around you. And I think those three are among the three best takeaways I've had yet on Chatter That Matters. And James Lachlan, I just, I thank you so much for being part of it. Tony, thank you so much. Incredible. You're an amazing interviewer in the way you listen and, and pull uh, those nuggets. It's just incredible. So I just I want to say a massive thank you uh, for having me on the show. If you're a fan of the show, you know I'm a fan of Mark Beckles, RBC's Vice President of Social Impact and Innovation. Mark, welcome back and thank you for again making time because I know with your portfolio of RBCX Music and, and Future Launch and Tech for Nature, you are a busy person. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me. So one of the sad states of our society is when I read about young males dropping out, feeling that they no longer belong in school, they lack purpose, finding a role in life. And we see so many getting lost in drugs, video gaming, and all the internet serves up. What do you think we need to do as a society to keep these young males finding and pursuing a path in life that's one of positivity and purpose and passion versus the sad state of just feeling like I don't have a place. 
Tony, it's an important question. I think that one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to find new and unique ways of uh, engaging young people and helping them to understand their their purpose uh, and their and their value. And I think identity also plays uh, into uh, into that as well. So identity, purpose, and value would be the three uh, things that I would I would focus on. Identity meaning if you don't know who you are, you don't know your history, you don't know your presence, and you don't know you know the extent to which uh, you you belong. And I think far too many young people uh, struggle with this whole notion of identity in a broader context. And then the piece their own purpose. Well, what am I here for? And what is it that I want to? Accomplish? What is it I want to deliver? And how can we as a society help young people deliver on that purpose? And then, you know, when I think of, you know, things like uh, gaming and, and so on, perhaps there are ways through gaming that we can actually appeal to young people and to turn, you know, that environment that so many young people seem to quote unquote lose themselves in to create experiences within digital environments that actually help us to connect with young people in more purposeful and more uh, effective ways. Gaming by itself is is not a bad thing. And in fact, last year, we launched the RBC Gaming Grant uh, to tap into uh, the IT uh, talents of young people, the d- digital skills of, of young people to help them uh, create uh, games, to help them innovate in that space. Well, perhaps we can do more of those things and use uh, gaming as a way of connecting with young people to help them identify uh, understand their identity and and their purpose, and not through that process, seeing them uh, become more committed to becoming contributing uh, citizens to society. Now, James is a you know a fun story. I mean, this is a kid that continued to get into trouble. He said school board mate. He's, he's a highly intelligent individual. Offered another detention, and and somebody said, "Listen, I'll get I'll give you a chance to get out of the detention." But you got to become a drummer. And, you know, he thought he was going to become the next Keith Moon or Ringo Starr. And it turned out it was a drummer in a Piper band. And he became a world-class drummer. And he won tons of awards. And he took his, his skills went from England to Canada to New Zealand. How important is it that we reach out to, the, to these kids that feel that nobody understands them with people like James who felt their pain, who might have been addicts who might have dropped out and found their path back, that they become in, in some ways the Pied Piper that says, hey, if, it, if I can do it, you can do it. In other words, how important is mentorship, but mentorship with the authenticity of someone having suffered similar pain, is that critical in terms of getting people to, to believe that they can, in fact, be that somebody that they dreamed of? Or? Absolutely. And I, I would say that like mentorship and, and, and access to role models is critical to helping young people find their path and their journey. You know, as someone who is a bit of an amateur musician uh, myself, uh, I am very much aware of the important role that music plays. Uh, played in helping me to find my own path and my own journey and how that helped me cut over to the workforce as a musician and where I had some real opportunities to think about do I want to find a career in corporate Canada or do I want to play the drums or the piano or the bass guitar all of which I am relatively proficient at and so when I think about young people who are thinking about music and I think about the RBC Emerging Artists Program that is focused on helping uh, young people and and young artists transition from emerging artists to established uh, artists thereby being able to make a living wage to support themselves I am all for 
supporting the arts. But regardless of one's vocation, what really matters is having access to mentorship and role models that you can see yourself in. And so how do we serve up, for want of a better way of saying it, how do we serve up more and more role models that actually appeal to the best versions of young people where they then can say, I can see myself being a Tony Chapman or a Mark Beckles or a Ringo Starr. How can we help young people see that best version of themselves as we connect them with mentors and sponsors and role models that are just fiercely supportive of all that those young people want to do? Well, Mark, you shared some uh, personal secrets that I might have to turn into an entire episode in Chatter That Matters <laughs> with the fork in the road where uh, you could have become a musician, but I think the world in Canada is better served because uh, you dedicate so much of your time to helping uh, RBC live that statement of people thriving and communities prospering. So I appreciate you once again taking the time to join me in Chatter That Matters, and uh, I look forward to our next chat. Absolutely, Tony. Thanks, and, and uh, you, you can chat anytime you want. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.